0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 20th, 2013.
0: Coming up, we're going to hear about the Kepler planet hunting mission and how to repurpose a spacecraft after its prime mission is over.
1: And Dr. Lakshmi Kandapalli of CU Denver will discuss how chemotherapy affects the fertility of cancer patients and the fertility options many of them have.
2: The technology is constantly moving forward, so patients have new options for parenthood after cancer treatment.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
1: Women often complain that men can't multitask, that they can't, say, do the dishes while watching after their six-year-old child. In fact, in choosing to mate, many females look for men who can do several difficult things at once. Well, it turns out we're not the only species living with this predicament. Females of many species judge suitors based on many indicators of good health or parenting potential. But... It can be difficult for males to produce multiple signals that demonstrate these qualities simultaneously. In a study of gray tree frogs, a team of researchers discovered that females prefer males whose calls reflect the ability to multitask effectively. The frogs produce the male frogs produce trilled mating calls that consist of a string of pulses. Typical calls range from 20 to 40 pulses per call, and a male might let out 5 to 15 calls per minute. Male frogs frogs face a trade-off between the length of a call and the rate of a call. But according to the study, female frogs prefer calls that are longer and more frequent. That's a tough order for a male. The study was led by Jessica Ward, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior. The study supports the multitasking hypothesis, which suggests that females prefer males who can do two or more hard-to-do things at the same time. Why? Well, because these are especially good quality males, according to Ward. The findings were published in the August issue of Animal Behavior.
0: A new study from the University of Rochester indicates that too much of the essential nutrient copper might promote Alzheimer's disease. In the study, lead author Rashid Dian gave mice drinking water laced with 50 times their normal copper intake. While that sounds high, he says the EPA considers it very safe.
2: We're using 10 percent of the maximum allowed in our drinking water is 10 percent.
0: For the mice, this safe level of copper in drinking water led to excess copper in the blood that feeds their brains. This activated mop-up proteins, such as beta amyloid and prions. Normally these proteins clear out inflammation, but the excess copper stuck to the cleanup proteins. These altered proteins, then clogged receptor channels that normally allow the beta-amyloid prion proteins and copper all to pass through the blood-brain barrier, so that they can be recycled. Deanne suggests that all this blockage may add to the buildup of beta-amyloid plaque found in Alzheimer's. Deanne and a team of researchers plan more research to determine whether people with Alzheimer's have higher blood copper levels. They are also exploring other substances that prevent the brain from cleansing itself from accumulating trash. For instance, high blood sugar levels can clog the receptors that allow toxins to leave the brain and be recycled. As for copper, everyone needs and gets trace amounts from food, copper plumbing, and supplements. Given the findings, Dan suggests reducing copper supplements in our diet. The study appears this week in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And for an extended version of an interview with Dr. Rashid Dion by Helena Shelley Schlender, go to our website, howonearthradio.org.
1: And on this day in 1858, 155 years ago, Charles Darwin first published his theory of evolution through natural selection in the Journal of the Proceedings of the Linnaean Society of London. Darwin jointly published it with fellow biologist Alfred Russell Wallace, Darwin's seminal book, On the Origins of Species, was published one year later.
0: And on the event calendar, tonight at Café Scientifique, Gregory Simon, assistant professor of geography at CU Denver, will give a talk called, A Hot Mess, Wildfires and the Dynamic Nature of Social Vulnerability in the U.S. West. The talk and discussion will run from 6.30 to 8 o'clock at the sports restaurant Brooklyn's at the pepsi center arrive early for drinks and mingling it's at 901 aurora parkway right across the parkway from the aurora campus for more info go to www.cafescicolorado.org <laughs> Tune to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Are we alone? That is the question that has crossed almost everyone's mind, particularly as you look up in the sky and ponder the huge extent of the universe and all the stars and galaxies out there. But before we can consider that question, we need to answer a different question. Are there other planets out there, and could some of them support life? Or is Earth somehow unique in its ability to support life? The Kepler mission was designed to start addressing that question by searching for planets around other stars. Since its launch in March 2009, the Kepler spacecraft has discovered many diverse candidate planets around other stars. But recently, the spacecraft has run into some technical problems. To talk about the past, present, and future of the Kepler mission, we have on the show today... Dr. Steve Howell from NASA's Ames Research Center. Dr. Howell has worked on the Kepler mission for about 12 years, starting with the original mission proposal. He was a member of the science team working on the wide-field imager in the process of taking and reducing the data, as well as follow-up measurements from ground-based observatories. He currently is the project scientist for the Kepler mission and is leading the effort to find a repurpose option for Kepler. Welcome to the show, Steve.
3: Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on.
0: So, can you first tell us, how does Kepler look for planets around other stars?
3: Sure. Kepler uses a a technique which is called uh, transit photometry. And it it, uh, stares at lots of stars at once, about 150,000 stars. And it detects the light that's emitted from these stars. It makes very precise measurements of that light. And it watches for the uh, time when a planet passes directly in front of its star. Its precision is similar to that you would get if you're standing on a nice tall mountain there in in the Colorado Rockies, and you would happen to be looking at the headlights of a car, say in Boston, Massachusetts, and a mosquito would fly in front of one of those headlights. If you could detect how much light was dimmed by that mosquito, you'd be doing about the same kind of precision that the Kepler spacecraft does when it watches planets pass directly in front of their stars.
0: So you're looking for an extremely faint wink of the star's brightness. That's right. So how successful has the uh, Kepler mission been?
3: Oh, it's been extremely successful. We have nearly 3,000 planet candidates. So those are objects that we believe are real planets that are orbiting other stars in our galaxy. Many of those systems are are somewhat like our own in the fact that we see more than one planet orbiting around a single star. Now, it will take years and years to prove that every one of those is an actual planet. And in fact, some may never be absolutely proven. But statistically, from all the ones we've looked at and the ones we've proven, we believe that that number is about 90% correct. It it could be more, it could be slightly less, but at 90% correct, That means that in one very small patch of the sky, we've detected 2,500 other planets.
0: So this is very exciting for looking for, you know, life or the possibility of life or maybe just the potential home for life elsewhere in the universe.
3: Yes, absolutely. We've found planets that are larger than our planet Jupiter. We've found planets that are smaller than our moon. And we've found a number of planets that are very similar in size to our own home world, the Earth.
0: This seems like a very exciting time where we're actually able to do observations and experiments that could lead to finding out the answer to the question, are we alone?
3: Yeah, that's been a question that's pondered people for a long time. And I can tell you where where I fall on that question. (laughs) We're (laughs) clearly not alone. But that'll take a few decades, I think, to uh, get a little more proof on.
0: So after all this success, the Kepler spacecraft has run into some problems. Can you explain what happened?
3: Sure. So the, the way that Kepler can measure this very precise wink, as, as you put it, is the, the spacecraft has to, has to point in one direction in the sky incredibly, incredibly precisely. And in order to do that, spacecraft use these little devices called reaction wheels, they're about the size of a quarter, and they work kind of like a gyroscope that many of us played with as kids. You, you spin them very fast, and when you spin them, you keep the spacecraft stable, much like the wheels on a bicycle when you're riding. You don't fall over. So, Kepler originally was launched with four of these, and it only needs three. So, in uh, July of last year, we lost one of these reaction wheels. The part just failed, as they do after a while. And we still had three, but we lost another one this May. And so with only two good reaction wheels, it's difficult to impossible to point the spacecraft incredibly precisely. And that means that the very high measurements of the light output from a star, the high precision to see these small planets, is no longer going to be able to happen with the Kepler spacecraft.
0: You have a space telescope that effectively, as a telescope is working, it's just limping basically.
3: That's right. So the, the spacecraft itself, other than these, this loss of these two reaction wheels and the telescope and the instrument on board, this very wide field imaging camera, are all working very well. So our plan is to work on other options. What other repurposed science can we do with this telescope out in space?
0: Do you have any one or two examples of what such a repurpose might be?
3: Well, one, one option with the telescope might be to look other places in the sky. Kepler uh, as a mission only stared at one small place and that was by design. We wanted to watch stars for a long, long time and find planets that had orbits that were very long like the Earth. And so one option would be that we could look somewhere else in the sky and possibly discover other planets. They would be larger planets or they would be planets around smaller stars. We can't do exactly what we did before. Uh, So that's one option. Other options are people have suggested anything from looking at active galaxies to variable stars to searching for near-Earth asteroids. So there's quite a a list of ideas that people are working on and and, uh, planning on submitting to a possible repurposed mission.
0: There will be some announcement of opportunity that scientists will be proposing to with their ideas?
3: That's right. There's been a a call for uh, white papers that is sort of a send-in-your-ideas Uh, That was uh, announced about a week ago. And uh, we have so far maybe 50 people who have expressed some interest into that in various ways. The white papers are due in only a few weeks, so it's a very short lead time because we don't want the telescope just sitting up there doing nothing. We want to find out what else we can do with it and get on to collecting more science data. We then go through a long process of evaluating all these uh, science ideas, looking at how the spacecraft can really operate, can it do what these science ideas want it to do. And then we have to sell the idea to NASA headquarters. NASA, of course, provides the funding for these missions, and we have to work on selling them a mission that they think will be uh, exciting enough and provide a high enough impact science to continue funding.
0: Well, I think we all look forward to hearing what Kepler comes up with for its next ideas. Will people be able to find out more about the mission from uh, the Kepler website?
3: They can, absolutely. If they go to the Kepler Science Center, and you can look that up on Google, that's the easiest way to find it instead of me blabbing some big address. (laughs) And the Kepler Science Center website is filled with all kinds of information, including a nice big advertisement for this call for scientific ideas.
0: Well, thank you very much for letting us know, Steve, what's in the possible future for Kepler.
3: Okay, thanks, Joel. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. That was Dr. Steve Howell, project scientist on the Kepler mission. To find out more about the mission, look for the Kepler Science Center, also kepler.nasa.gov.
1: You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. It's tough enough to receive a cancer diagnosis. For many patients, an added insult is that chemotherapy treatments can make them infertile. In fact, there are many options for cancer patients who want to start a family or have more children. A key problem has been that many of them aren't educated by oncologists about their fertility options before they jump right into drug treatments. Dr. Lakshmi Kandapalli is an assistant professor of reproductive endocrinology, and Infertility at the University of Colorado, Denver. And she heads the Onco Fertility Program at CU Cancer Center. The program is one of few such programs in the country, in fact. Dr. Kandapalli has joined us in the studio. Welcome to How on Earth. Thank you for having me, Susan. So why don't we start with, you know, I think many people in some way have been affected by cancer and are thus somewhat familiar with chemotherapy treatments, including some of the negative side effects. Tell us maybe what's known about how these treatments actually affect fertility in both men and women.
2: Sure. That's actually a really good question. It's surprising that we know very little about um, the long-term side effects of cancer treatment on fertility. Um, Much of the information that we do have is based on a large cohort study called the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study. They've been following patients, a cohort of about 20,000 patients, that they've been following over the last 30 to 40 years, and while it's a great source of... um, Um, data, given the uh, patient population is so fast. Unfortunately, many of those patients were treated with chemotherapeutic regimens in the 1970s and 80s. And as we know, cancer treatment has dramatically changed even in the last five to 10 years. So it's quite dated and and not that much as been updated? Correct. So there are um, investigators like myself that are trying to really identify and um, improve the way that we can counsel patients based on cancer treatments in the modern era and following patients over time to see, you know, in the current status of uh, cancer treatment, how do these different types of treatments and regimens really affect male and female fertility?
1: So maybe let's back up a bit and give us a little primer of sorts on fertility itself for both... Men and women. I think you had said something like, I mean, most of the eggs women get, millions of them happen in utero, and it's a downhill battle of sorts after that.
2: (laughs) Yes, that's true. So we know that there are many differences between men and women. And one of those in terms of reproduction is that um, men, there are stem cells within the testes. And so boys can actually continue to make sperm once they go through puberty, well into their 70s and 80s of age. Mm -hmm. It's quite different for females. Unfortunately, as far as we know, there are no stem cells within the ovaries. And in fact, girls are born with all the eggs that they'll ever have. In utero, at about five months pregnant, um, female infants will have the most eggs that they'll ever have in their entire lifetime. About how many? About 7 million in utero. Wow. However, when that female infant takes her first breath, she is born with only 1 to 2 million. So 5 million of those eggs get absorbed before that girl takes her first breath. So is natural
1: selection saying, you better get to work right away,
2: honey? (laughs) I would say so. And that process of loss continues even in early childhood. So when that girl enters puberty, we think that she is left with about 300,000 eggs. From 7 million to 300,000 just to age 12 or 13. Exactly. And we don't understand the science behind why that happens. So we don't really know if anything
1: makes sense of it from an evolutionary biology right. standpoint. That's
2: still a question that needs to be determined. That's hard to get my mind around. <laughs> <laughs> so then t- tell us a bit more about what's known about
1: the different effects that chemotherapy treatments have. And I know it's not just a one-stop shop. They, they all have different effects, right?
2: Right. So there are certain types of chemotherapeutic agents um, that we think are on the higher end of the spectrum in terms of causing long-term infertility effects. So there are agents such, such as alkylating agents. Um, a common chemotherapeutic agent is something called cyclophosphamide or ifosphamide. We think that that particular agent is one of the more toxic uh, medications uh, in terms of destroying um, the pool of follicles or pool of eggs within the ovary. Um, We also know that pelvic radiation can also be quite toxic to both male and female reproductive organs. Mm -hmm. And while we're talking about fertility, particularly for women, we know that pelvic radiation also can impair the blood flow to the ovaries and to the uterus and may predispose these young patients to pregnancy complications. So not only are we talking about the impact on fertility, but that patient may actually be at risk of being able to sustain a healthy pregnancy in the future.
1: Boy, so especially if you want to preserve your fertility, are there many options among the
2: different chemo treatments for men and women? Yeah, so in terms of fertility preservation options, it's been really astounding... in terms of how quickly the technology is moving forward. So on the male side, uh, we can offer patients sperm banking. Um, It's a pretty straightforward process where uh, patients can come in, collect a sample, and we can freeze sperm. Sperm can be frozen for decades. On the female side, that's really where the advances in technology have made tremendous strides. So in terms of female fertility preservation, we can freeze eggs themselves. We can put egg and sperm together and create an embryo and freeze embryos. Mm-hmm. And an experimental procedure that is um, relatively new is something called ovarian tissue freezing. So all those eggs that a woman has are actually on the outer layer of the ovary. And that outer layer is quite thin. I describe it as being as if you can imagine the skin of a grape, mm-hmm. you know, how thin the skin of a mm-hmm. grape is, the skin of the ovary is just is about that thin, and all those eggs that a woman will ever have are contained within the skin of the ovary. So we can do a surgical procedure where we can remove the skin of the ovary and freeze that. Wow, so there are actually quite a few options, and and can they be frozen for
1: decades or many years? Is, is that known?
2: Yes, they can be. And in fact, um, for example, with ovarian tissue freezing, that's a procedure that is particularly useful for, for girls who haven't gone through puberty because egg banking and embryo banking is not an option for them. Mm-hmm. So for those patients, we can freeze that tissue and it can be stored. I have patients who are quite young or even prepubertal, and they may not come back to use that tissue for decades. Wow, so at the CU Cancer Center, what is
1: a key message your, your, conveying or want to convey to those at prepubescent, perhaps, even?
2: Yeah, so I think that uh, we have s- such a vast menu of options that are available to patients. Um, particularly at the CU Cancer Center, we have a great collaboration with our oncologist, and so that all patients under the age of 45 are at least approached and di- fertility concerns are discussed with them. Um, and so I think that we have a great model for comprehensive care, um, and this is a model that can be really translated to other programs across the country.
1: Well, thank you so much. So much more on this topic. Thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Kandapalli. She's the head of the Onco Fertility Program at CU Cancer Centre in Denver. You can keyword search CU Cancer Centre Fertility Programme.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Susan Moran is this show's producer and executive producer for this quarter.
1: Joel Parker was this show's engineer, and thanks to Shelley Schlinder for her headline contribution. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the 22-7 Organ Trio. In fact, they're Boulder Valley School District graduates.
0: Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries, just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button.
1: Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.
2: And I'm Joel Parker.